Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Our next guest is Nate Herrick. Nate served in the National Guard, and after 9-11, he was called to active duty and proudly served in Operation Iraqi Freedom. When Nate returned home, he purchased his first multifamily. After he purchased his first multifamily, Nate met an independent ATM operator, and it was Nate's first exposure to the mindset of an entrepreneur and not an employee. After he started an Airbnb and a VBRO renting company, where he would list luxury ski rentals. Nate discovered that this wasn't a viable option and started a recruiting company with his brother. In 2019, Nate formed NAZ Capital, where he invests in ATMs, multifamily syndications, and other private placements. All right, Nate, thanks for joining us today. We're really excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. Come back from serving overseas. What made you want to purchase your first rental property? You know, it was funny. I was actually sitting in an army barracks that was actually condemned <laughs> when we were getting ready for the Iraq war. I actually enlisted in the army as a way to pay for school. It was kind of like my only option at the time, but that's what led me to the military in the first place. And a good friend of mine who I'm friends with to this day actually gave me the book to read, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it kind of opened my mind to like what else was out there other than being an employee. So that kind of got me started. Bought my first property right when I got out. And as a matter of fact, just last month, sold it. So like 16 years later. That's kind of interesting. Did you use the VA? I initially was going to attempt to do that, but the numbers made sense going regular FHA. So was it a good investment? Overall, yes. In the long term, it was. The tenants paid down that principal and it cash flowed a little bit. But if I had to do it all over again, obviously, I would choose a different property. It was a single family and it just didn't throw off enough cash flow like I'd like, but it was a good learning experience, nevertheless. What was it throwing off a month? After expenses, it was a couple hundred a month. But the good news was the learning and I was really chipping away at the principal as well. So it was a good first learning experience, managing tenants and all that good stuff, getting the phone calls when the washing machine's leaking and really a crash course into being a landlord. So... This is something that I've seen it seem to be growing in popularity. Let's talk about the ATM business. It's something that I'm really interested in. It seems like one of the ultimate passive ways to earn money, minimal upkeep. There's no tenants and things like that. How'd you get started? Let me backtrack a little to how I got started in that. And this was long after I got out of the military. I was actually working a corporate job. I had a nine to five with a major consumer goods corporation in field sales. And I just so happened to run into an individual who had an ATM business. And he recognized that he's like, hey, man, you, you know everybody in this area. You know every store owner. The market just so happened to be in New Haven, Connecticut. And he invited me out to lunch. He explained to me the business over lunch. And he's like, hey, if you want to partner with me, and try to land a couple locations and do everything that it takes to bring one on board. We'll split the profits 50-50 and this is our structure and blah, blah, blah. So basically that's what happened. 
And to this day, my first ever ATM machine that I deployed is at the New Haven train station, busy train station to New York City. And it's still in operation to this day, you know, 10 and a half, 11 years later. The same machine, still chugging along. And I've added several since then, obviously, but lost some, gained some. But at the end of the day, it was a great learning experience. And really my first introduction to being more of an entrepreneur and not a employee. That's sort of how I got my start was I was definitely introduced to the business through someone who knew it very well. What are the benefits of investing in an ATM? I think the best place to start is, okay, how does an ATM work? How does it throw off cash? How do you make money on it? The ATMs I am referring to, by the way, are terminals that you'd find in independently owned locations, gas stations, convenience stores, liquor stores, grocery stores, things of that nature, or they could be anywhere. Basically, when you use one of those machines, there's a service charge, right? So let's use like $3 as an example. So out of that $3 service charge, the way you make money is obviously you need a location for that ATM. So the store owners aren't going to let you put that ATM in there. So typically in the business, in the marketplace right now, the merchant typically gets around 50% of that. So they get $1.50 right off the top. Your second expense is obviously you need somebody to load that machine with cash. It's operational. The way an ATM works is any cash that's removed from that machine before 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, that money is back in the cash loader's account the very next day. So you need a cash loader for that rotational cash, and they make about 60 cents a transaction. Okay, so right now you're already down to 90 cents, okay? But you're left with 90 cents a transaction. In addition to that, there's something that we call interchange. You make a little bit of money, which is the back-end money, where if you've ever used an out-of-network ATM, your bank charges you. could be another $2 on the back-end. Us ATM operators, guess what? We get a piece of that, too. In the example I just used, you know, you're going to make about a dollar, dollar ten a transaction. But as you can imagine, in certain marketplaces, in certain areas, I mean, machines can do a boatload of business. And you can probably, and I have myself, cash flowed greater amounts from one single ATM than an apartment building. You think about the cost of, like I like to analyze this ATM investment. Okay, what's your rate of return on an ATM machine versus a commercial building from a cash-on-cash cash perspective? An ATM costs about $2,400, a brand new one that you could deploy in a bar, a restaurant, a gas station, anywhere. Now, if you're making, let's say, $220 a month, two and change a month on that machine, your rate of return is 100% annual rate of return on a $2,400 investment. I don't know about you, but I'm not getting that anywhere in real estate. I do invest in real estate, but I really like the cash flow that can be generated in a two-square-foot space of any retail outlet. So that's the beauty of it, and that's really where I saw the benefit. And you brought up the passive side of this. Once that ATM is deployed and you have somebody loading it with cash, whatever service it might be, it might be the merchant, it might be a third party, you're pretty much hands-off. Unless the machine breaks, you'd have to dispatch you know, a service tech or whatever. The really own, just breaking it down to my true administrative time spent on this business, once a month I print out statements and I send my merchants their commission checks. And that takes me about no more than an hour a month. So a little bit more than that by getting new locations. Again, it's like any business, all the work is up front. You know, you've got to bring a terminal online, you've got to set it up in our system and everything like that. But it's definitely a tremendous business that can be scaled. How much? So you said it was 2400 
Yeah, a brand new machine that will do what you need to do in the marketplace. It's about 2400 bucks. Now, what are the other costs associated with starting it up? If you do not have somebody to install it, there's an installation cost and program the machine. So, you know, anywhere between 300 to $500, depending on the Obviously, this thing's full of cash. You want it bolted down to the concrete. You want certain safeguards in place. But other than that, there is no cost to run the machine unless, like any machine, unless something breaks. And then what about the cash itself in the machine? Is that your cash or you go into a bank? Nope, that's a very good question. I talk about a cash loader, right? So the, the beauty of ATM machines is yeah, I used to load machines with cash myself. I really did. I used to drive around with $25,000 in my glove compartment. I didn't think anything of it. Knock on wood, nothing ever happened. But no, any other third-party cash loader that I deploy, it's all of their capital. It's not my capital. It's all of their capital. It's all of their risk. So I'm just going to reiterate everything you told me. So you buy a machine for around 2400 get the programming and installation for three to 500 and then someone else comes in and they put the cash in and then you just sit back and you make that 90 plus cents a transaction. Roughly correct. Absolutely. So how come more people aren't doing this? Well, it's like anything. My opinion, a large percentage of our population is frankly, I think is lazy. I don't think they look for opportunities. They don't network. They don't talk to the right people. I kind of fell into it, no doubt about it, but I was always looking for new opportunities out there. And very few people take action. If a lot of people in this business do manage their own ATM routes, they do load the money themselves. So it is a grind. They make obviously a higher percentage because they do a lot more work. More time goes into it as well. So I have a network of, of cash loaders that can pretty much alleviate that concern. But to answer your question as to why more people don't get into it, I think most people in this world are busy with their primary job. They have families. They're not looking. A lot of people aren't looking for a side hustle. A lot of people are, would rather earn money online, maybe, or in other ways. And here's the other thing. Here's the key that I think why more people don't get into this is because if you really sit back and think about it, most ATM locations are already taken. You know, So it's, the barrier to entry is actually high. But that's not to say I just didn't install a new machine last week, actually about 20 minutes from where we're sitting now. So it is possible, but the barrier to entry is fairly high if you aren't networking with the right people and don't know the right people. A lot of it is just opening your eyes and saying, oh, wow, an ATM might work here. Thinking outside the box, I know it's a cliche, but I think that goes into it. So when you go out to eat or you go shopping, is this something you're constantly looking for? Looking Oh, I'm always looking for new opportunities. A very busy Italian market in my own hometown, I've presented the idea to, of an ATM, and I know I could throw off some great cash flow from it and provide additional cash flow to the store owner, but they're just not open to the idea. They shot me down numerous times, and it's like any sales. There's rejection. It's not for everybody. Some people aren't interested. So what's something you wish you knew in the ATM industry before you got started? It's a great question. To think bigger. I was you know, 10, 11 years younger and didn't think on a scalability, from a scalability standpoint. I always thought I had to do everything myself up until just a couple of years ago. I'm still out there with a drill bit bolting down my own machines, but now I have a service technician to do it. To answer your question, it would be to scale it, to utilize a team 
of service providers rather than try to do it all yourself. Now, do you underwrite potential locations? Yeah, absolutely. So I have people throw me ideas for locations all the time, and I know what works and what doesn't. And a good rule of thumb is this. If you've got high foot traffic, you're going to have a pretty good ATM. Like, and that sounds oversimplified, right? But it's true. The other place that ATMs typically do well is low income areas, people that are underserved, people that don't have credit cards, people that don't have credit, people that utilize public assistance, EBT cards for cash. So you're saying non-affluent areas, they do extremely well? That's kind of crazy to me because you wouldn't think that, right? The normal person, they would just think, you know, for lack of a better term, these people are broke and they wouldn't use it. But why do they do better in these locations? So, So for reason number one, a large percentage of our population we deem in the business as unbankable. They don't have bank accounts. They have like stored value cards that they use ATMs for. The other thing people might not realize is the average ATM withdrawal in the United States of America is $40, believe it or not. So they're paying just under 10% to get that money out on a $3 service charge. Yeah, I mean, pretty close. I mean, what's that, 7.5%. So yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. There's not as much money being withdrawn as you think. There's not as much cash in an ATM as you may think. (laughs) And that's interesting because I read that last week there was a crime syndication. In New York City, they stole nine machines. They only got $36,000, which doesn't seem like a ton of money. Absolutely. I mean, I can tell you this straight up when I used to load machines myself and I put anywhere between two to 4,000 in and that was it. And because I was in more of these low income areas, the withdrawal amount was lower and two grand would last you longer than you might think. Now, what denominations? Typically $20 bills. I'm glad you bring this up because in our business, there is a growing call for a multi-denomination ATMs, tens, fives. So what I think is the best combination is not to give away too many of our secrets, but stocking a machine with 20s and fives because you can create any denomination because most of these machines dispense two denominations. You start getting up there in price when you start adding different cassettes with different denominations. So a multi-denominational machine is going to cost you about $3,000. It's going to cost you more money, but it does throw off more transactions. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I used to have a machine that dispensed 20s and 5s. I couldn't tell you how many $5 withdrawals people would take out because it was like right across the street from a bus stop. (laughs) I've been seeing some crazy ATM machines. Now they're cryptos and things like that. Yeah, Bitcoin ATMs. I can't speak to that, but I could tell you in the industry, I have spoke to some industry experts on that, and they're not really doing as well as people might think. They really haven't been adopted in the marketplace, similar to like really Bitcoin hasn't really been that adopted in the general marketplace, if that makes sense. Do you use independent ATMs? Are they backed by a bank? They have a logo? That's a good question. So, I mean, there's ways to brand ATMs out there. Most of mine are unbranded. We run through a company called MetaBank. They're more of a processor. So think of it like a credit card machine. An ATM is nothing more than an intermediary. It's a machine that links my account, the cash loader, with your account, the cardholder. And there's fees associated with that. And there's networks that handle these transactions. And really, that's what it is. At the core of what an ATM machine is, it's a machine that acts as an intermediary between two accounts. Actually, more than two accounts. There's a lot of other 
people with their hands in the pie, obviously, but then that service charge and interchange gets split up accordingly. So I'm sure this is a very common question for you. The younger generation starting to heavily rely on electronic forms of payment. Is that something that as you concern, how much attention do you pay to that? No, that's a great question. And it's interesting to see the statistics regarding ATM transaction, the numbers behind it, like, is it going up? Is it going down? And obviously we don't have numbers from 2019 yet, but 2018 compared to 2017, we actually saw ATM transactions grow in the United States of America. So I found that very interesting. I would have never thought that, but I look at my own portfolio and my portfolio hasn't grown too much. It's more or less sideways, but it definitely hasn't gone down. So you're starting this ATM business. How is your employer receptive to this growing business? It's funny you ask that question because by growing this business and learning, having more of the entrepreneurial mindset, it caused me to lose my job. I actually lost my job, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it got me out of a bad situation that I didn't want to be in. It almost like kicked me out the door, right? And I still have this business to this day. I've moved on to other things. I'm a firm believer in having a primary source of income, throw off cash flow so you can invest in other things. My primary source of income, my nine to five, for lack of a better term, is a recruiter. I work with architects, engineers, and construction professionals at a company out of Hartford, Connecticut called Secure Tech Solutions. So we're recruiters, and we're currently looking to really ramp up this business. We're building this business. We're looking to expand into New York City market, New Jersey market. So Secure Tech is doing great right now. And it and really was like getting fired from my last job that really kickstarted that process for me. When you got fired, was there like a, holy shit, what no, am I going to do? No, it was a sense of relief. Oh, I felt great. So you rely heavily on Airbnb and VBRO. Yeah. For your rental property, you have ski and beach yeah, properties. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So this was sort of the bridge between my two careers, right? So I don't focus on it really much anymore, but at a given time when I did lose my corporate job, I actually jumped into a new venture with a friend of mine, former military compadre, you know, for lack of a better term, where we managed uh, owner's rental programs at luxury resorts throughout the country. So basically what we would do is we would acquire owners who are willing to list their time with us. We would list it on, you know, Airbnb, VRBO, those types of sites, facilitate all the marketing, all the rental agreements, all the payment processing, and then pay the owner. And then we obviously had our commission built in as well. You know, I still do it a little bit with one property in Lake Tahoe, nothing crazy, but it is an additional income stream. But I learned a lot sales-wise. And you know what I learned a lot in that business from all the communication back and forth with renters and potential owners is really how to streamline communication. So, for example, it's great to send somebody an initial email and answer all their questions in that initial email without them having to ask it. It saves time, right? That's what I took out of that. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about rejection. I didn't land every deal that I tried to get. There's a lot of owners that don't want to do business with guys like me. They're like, oh, I don't need a third party. I'll just do it myself on Airbnb or whatever. Most people realize sooner rather than later that it's very time consuming. In that it's not all you hear a lot. And I know this is like the popular thing online now. Oh, I'm making money on Airbnb. Well, guess what? It's not as easy as people make it out to be. It's very time consuming. So is that your main gripe with Airbnb and the vacation rental by owner? Uh, yeah, well, I... Let's think about it from start to finish, okay? 
let's say I get an inquiry on VRBO, let's say, and then they have a couple questions, and what does this include, and what does that include, because most people don't read the ad, right? Let's say they want a book. Okay, great. Now I have to contact the owner. Hey, we've got a renter for you. Airbnb doesn't reach out to the owner. They think I'm the owner, right? Because I'm the agent, right? So I have to communicate with the owner. Hey, we've got a renter for this time period. Owner gets back to you. Sounds good, Nate. Let's proceed. I can't tell you how many times owners rent out stuff on their own and don't tell you. There's all drawbacks, right? This is all part of it. Next thing you got to do, okay, then you got to collect money from the renter. You got to send them a rental agreement. You know, everything needs to be official. You're just not doing this on a whim. Processing payment. That payment post, you then got to pay the owner. The owner then has to send a confirmation to the renter. And this is all one transaction. And just think of the amount of transactions you need to do to make significant income on this, especially in the industry. I mean, 20 to 25% fee associated with this business is about standard. So what's something you would change about Airbnb? I think what has happened in this industry, although it's no longer a large focus of mine, I'm sure a lot of your listeners might be interested in this business. One thing that has changed, and I can speak from this, doing this for probably eight or nine years, is they've taken the control away from the owner or the agent. It's no longer vacation rental by owner, it's vacation rental by corporate. They make the rules. They say when they can pay you. I used to be able to take my own payments. Now they require them to run payments through them, so they get a cut. Um, There's a lot of things that they've done, so what I would caution people is the control is no longer with the owner, the control is with Airbnb and VRBO. Great example, Airbnb, they don't pay you until that renter checks in. There's a lot of Airbnbs they allow people to cancel up to a week ahead of time. Now that only leaves you seven days to market your property. So who's got the control? You know, how I used to run my program was, guess what? Zero cancellation policy. Look, you want a book? Yeah, great. But I'm sorry, you can't cancel two weeks before. So there are drawbacks, but there are a lot of positives too. Tell us about how you got into recruiting. I'd like to talk a little bit about my investment, a group that I formed with my brothers, same along those lines. My brother has been in the recruiting business for nearly 20 years, and there was a need at their firm and of an experienced, more of a sales guy. And I stepped up and I was ready for that new challenge. That's sort of how I got in was through family, through my brother. Worked together hand in hand every day. I work with the candidates, he works with the clients, and our goal for 2020 is to expand in the New York City marketplace. Secure Tech Solutions will now have a platform and a presence in New York, New Jersey, and hopefully Philadelphia marketplace shortly. Is it NAZ or NAS? NAS Capital. My name is Nate. My brother's name is Aaron, and my middle brother's name is Zach. So NAS. Nate, Aaron, and Zach, NAS Capital, LLC, formed this entity Several months ago, we've invested in two syndications. We're rolling right along. We like to look at multifamily out-of-state apartment deals and also self-storage. So why do you go out-of-state? Do you think you get more bang for your buck? No, definitely. That's where the groups that I've chose to partner with are based out of. You know, Texas, Georgia, the Carolinas, to name a few. It's great because it's a passive investment. It's not a lot of work involved. We read some executive summary. And the primary vetting, obviously, is always great. These operators, you've got to trust these people. And I've relied heavily on my network that I've built over the years to vet syndicators. I think that's the best way to vet somebody 
is to talk to somebody who's already invested with them time and time again. My second way I love to vet people, well, actually my first way, is follow-up. If I send an email to an operator of a large syndication, how fast do they get back to me? It could be the sponsor. It could be the operator themselves. How fast do they follow up? And if their follow-up is spot on, that's a great indication of the type of business person they are. Our listeners want to heed that advice. How long would you give for a follow-up? I'll be honest with you. Most of the people I deal with follow up with me in several hours. Incredible. Everyone's got their phone in their pocket. There's nothing that gets me more in business when someone takes two or three days to follow up with me. It's like, hey, pal, don't act like you don't have your phone in your pocket. What do you look for in self-storage? Well, self-storage, I'm actually personally invested in a deal. More of a fund based in Florida, a lot of Florida, Alabama. I look for upside, value add all the way. I want to see operators who identify opportunities. Your classic mom and pop, the guy that's sick and tired of running the storage unit, is kind of running it into the ground. And so there's areas of opportunity, whether it be marketing opportunities, fresh coat of paint, raising the rents, things of that nature, optimizing the property, I think is like the buzzword now. Let's optimize. That's what I look for. You'd be shocked how many mom and pop operators don't even have websites. And as you know, from being on the inside of it, the whole key is with the search engine optimization or the SEO, I know that gets thrown around a lot. It's to get the person a book before they even visit the property. And before they even step foot on site. I mean, it's no different than a rental listing. Hey, let's show them some pictures of the unit before I waste my time and show the place. So what kind of returns are you seeing on the self-storage? Well, I'm in the phase right now of the investing phase where it's strictly the monthly cash flow disbursements. We haven't exited any deals yet. From what I've seen and heard from a lot of my people that I work with in the investment community, you know, I'm seeing returns anywhere between 20 and 40%. When you annualize it out after disposition, yes. How are these deals structured? Is it a JV or are you a limited partner? I'm on the LP side of things. I'm looking to get into joint ventures. I mean, as I move forward with my group, NAS Capital, to start stepping up our game and taking a look at other deals and how we can be more involved. So what markets would NAS Capital target? I think it would be any market where there's significant job growth or job opportunity or stabilized jobs. A lot of times people focus on Florida because of the warm weather, people moving in and out, the need for storage. The other thing too is everybody thinks we're at the end of the cycle. Self-storage naturally is a good hedge against economic downturns. So, I mean, we take all that into consideration, but I don't really care any specific geography if the deal looks good. The self-storage REITs were actually the only profitable REITs in the economic recession of 2008 and on. They eked out a little gain, but I mean, a little gain's better than the major losses that all the other, yeah. Yeah, people lost their homes. That's the one thing people don't realize about self-storage. People, by nature, not like to get rid of their stuff. It's funny that you bring this up. Just last week, we finished construction on three storage bays in one of my rental properties. So now my tenants actually have, well, I'm obviously generating income from it, but now the garage doesn't look like someone threw a grenade in it. It's nice and organized. Yeah, storage in any capacity, even if you're talking individual rental properties, having that storage on site, being able to obviously charge for it and generate income is great. 
but it also just makes the property just seem that much more professional and desirable because people need that storage. And how did you get introduced to investing in self-storage? Because it's an odd asset class, let's be honest. I've been a member of certain real estate investment groups across the country for years. And my first exposure to it was a group out of Manhattan Beach, California, the Roll Investment Group. I'm not sure if you've heard of them, but you might have heard of ASIM Capital as well, Hunter Thompson. I'm invested in one of his funds, and that was my first exposure to both self-storage and mobile home park investing, which is also interesting. Mobile homes have been really hot recently. You've seen those cap rates have really compressed as, as yep. well. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I was exposed to those years ago, probably seven years ago. Now they've, like you said, they've blown up and everybody's looking into them because mobile home park storage, it gets away from the tenants. Like a mobile home park is like owning a big parking lot and everyone knows what self-storage is. Well, Nate, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Can you tell everyone how they can get in touch with you guys? Epic, E-P-I-C-A-T-M.net is where you can reach me. If our discussion on ATMs did pique your interest and you would be looking to partner, I'm always looking to gain you know new partners in this game and teach you the business if that's something that you might be interested in. Again, it's not for everybody, but it is an interesting way to throw off some additional cash flow. So that's epicatm.net. And also the recruiting side of things, we are looking to grow our network in the New York area is securetechsolutions.com. We focus on architects, engineers, and construction professionals. So if you're ever in the need for any type of staffing on those, anything from small projects to skyscrapers, I mean, we handle everything in between. Yeah, excited to see what lies ahead for you guys. Thanks again, Nate. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at Dot com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.